This week on the show, first seizure of life. Now, we've talked a bit about epilepsy before, the management of status epilepticus with Dr. Chloe Hill in episode 45, how anti-epileptic medications can interact with each other, episode 14. Man, that was like over a year ago. And you might remember that interview with Tori Robinson about her experience dealing with an epilepsy diagnosis, episode 65. This week's episode is different, and it kind of elaborates on some of the points that we made in these prior shows, using a case presentation. To present the case today, and joining me via Skype, is Dr. Brian Hanrahan. My name is Brian Hanrahan. I'm a chief resident at UPMC Presbyterian Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'll be going to Clinical Neurophysiology Fellowship. All right, well, let's consider a case. Uh, For the sake of time, we're going to skip over a lot of the background, save to say that Dr. Hanrahan, you are the on-call provider, and you've been asked to see a young man in his 20s who had a witnessed convulsive event starting with right facial twitching, and then that generalized. He's in your ED, he has received intravenous midazolam in the field already, and he's a bit sleepy, but is arousable. Basic labs and toxicology screening were normal, and a head CT shows nothing acute. What is the risk of recurrent seizures in this patient? Well, that's a, a great uh, example of a case that many people see in their residency. And the first thing that I usually try to differentiate when I'm talking to these patients is whether or not this was a provoked seizure or not. The risk of having a second seizure or epilepsy after a first seizure is approximately 33%, but there are many subgroups within this patient population that have variable risks. And patients that have a variety of metabolic, toxic, or infectious issues that are leading to this uh, seizure such as hyponatremia, encephalitis, alcohol withdrawal, it is likely that these patients are not going to develop epilepsy thereafter. Once you try to figure out whether the patient has a provoked or unprovoked seizure, usually my second round of questioning is whether or not not the patient has any uh, seizure risk factors. So usually a family history of epilepsy should be asked of every patient. Uh, You should try to review if the patient has any past medical history of any traumatic brain injuries or cerebral palsy, because these patients actually have the highest risk of developing epilepsy. Also, a history of meningitis, strokes, or even neurocognitive diseases such as Alzheimer's disease lead to a higher risk of epilepsy as opposed to the general population. Besides the initial history that you're getting, what other diagnostic testing could you use to determine the risk of a patient having recurrent seizures? You know, of course, you're going to want to get some basic serum studies on any patient that presents like this, and that's including a glucose, a CBC, and a uh, comprehensive metabolic panel. There are probably two sets of diagnostic studies you're going to want to get on every patient in addition to your serum studies. One is including some type of head imaging. The American Academy of Neurology in 2007 recommended that every patient get at least a head CT or MRI with MRI being the preferred method due to its increased sensitivity for uncovering epileptogenic lesions. Secondly, it's valuable for every patient that has an unprovoked seizure to get a routine EEG. My understanding with the EEG is that sometimes the EEG is limited, and even in a patient who has a primary generalized epilepsy, the EEG could be absolutely normal. Oh, that's absolutely true. And what we know is the sooner you get the EEG done on a patient, the more likely you're going to capture any epileptogenic phenomena because not... Now, this is a difficult concept to grasp, epileptogenic phenomena, because you can get an EEG on a patient and it can technically be abnormal, but abnormalities don't necessarily equate to seizure risk. There are some things that epileptologists frequently look for which indicate a higher seizure frequency. So, um... 
anything that looks like uh, sharp waves or spikes on an EEG may represent uh, seizure tendency. Basically, anything that looks too sharp to sit on. With generalized periodic discharges, uh, lateralized rhythmic delta. Especially if this involves the temporal region, which is highly epileptogenic. And then there are some other high-risk findings that apply to many patients, things like focal slowing and some high-risk features that are unique to only a handful of primary epilepsy syndromes. For instance, you can see hypsarrhythmia in West Syndrome, continuous spike wave discharges in Landau-Kleffner Syndrome, and burst suppression in Odahara Syndrome. If you're unable to find anything abnormal the first time around, it is reasonable to try again in the outpatient setting in a sleep-deprived study. I think one other thing and obviously the context of the patient's first seizure of life is critical to consider. For instance, if you have a patient who comes in with thunderclap headache and seizures, they should be worked up for the various causes of thunderclap headache, which present with seizures. And we discussed some of these in episode 8 with Dr. Kankanian. Or you could have a patient who presents with fever and nuchal rigidity, and you'd suspect meningitis. So then you'd want to proceed quickly with a lumbar puncture and empiric antibiotic treatment. And today, we're limiting the discussion to an adult who presents with first-ever seizure of life. Children are managed entirely differently. But let's get back to our patient, the adult who presented with the first unprovoked seizure of life. My next question for Dr. Hanrahan had to do with whether this means the patient now has epilepsy. Oh, that's a, a, another tough question to answer uh, and try to help us you know, answer that. I usually refer to the International League Against Epilepsy's classification of epilepsy, which they came out in, in 2014. Meaning the patient has two unprovoked seizures more than 24 hours apart, or they have a diagnosed epilepsy syndrome by laboratory or EEG testing. But then that third criterion always confuses me. And the third one is if the patient experiences an unprovoked seizure with a probability of experiencing a second seizure over 60%. And this is what is comparable to a patient that has two unprovoked seizures. I've heard that you know different providers will use imaging and EEG features to kind of uh, risk stratify these patients. How can we set a threshold for 60% in our patient and what features would necessarily bring him up to that 60th percentile? That's where the value of the MRI and the EEG come in in the evaluation of a patient with a first-time unprovoked seizure. Uh, for example, if you get an MRI performed and you have findings that suggest that he has mesial temporal sclerosis, this is going to place him at a much higher risk of having a secondary seizure. Same if they had focal cortical dysplasia. If you're getting an EEG and it shows that there's uh, right temporal sharps, then you're also going to be reasonable to conclude that this patient's risk may be higher than 60% as well. And timing is crucial here. Because that EEG obtained after a patient has his or her first seizure may show those high-risk features that we just discussed. Maybe there's some rhythmic temporal slowing, and the patient has HSV encephalitis. But that doesn't mean that our patient has epilepsy only that the patient's at risk of having recurrent seizures. Oh, that's absolutely true. You see that in a lot of patients that have uh, you know, hemorrhagic strokes, they can have epileptiform activity. doesn't mean they're going to develop epilepsy. We see this in press as well, and we know that once we get patients' blood pressures under control, they most often do not end up developing epilepsy. So getting back to our patient, let's say that we get the EEG and the MRI, and they're both normal which was the case for this gentleman. We wouldn't necessarily give him the diagnosis of epilepsy, but does that mean we shouldn't treat him? That answer in a minute when our program continues. Hi, my name is Emma Smirstick, 
Support for this episode and the following message come from Audible, home to nearly 200,000 audiobooks. I recommend Of Mice and Men. This book or any other can be yours for free for 30 days if you sign up on audibletrial.com slash brainwaves. That's audibletrial.com slash brainwaves. So Brian, would you treat our patient with an anticonvulsant? Well, that usually requires a pretty uh, long and thorough conversation with the patient. So what we know is that if we provide this patient with a seizure medication, levetiracetam or something like that, we may reduce the risk of him experiencing a second seizure, but we'll probably have no bearing whether or not the patient develops epilepsy. In addition to that, we know that a lot of these medications are pretty minimally uh, harmful, but there is a little bit uh, risk of starting these types of medications, although they tend to be mild and pretty reversible. I think the third thing to consider when you're starting a patient on a seizure medication or not with a first-time seizure is the type of lifestyle that patient has. If they are required to drive to work um, and now they're not able to because of the seizure, you may be more more willing to start a seizure medication to potentially reduce the risk of a second one from occurring in the first place. I think that's an important point for us to bring up. Uh, With regard to driving Some providers who meet a patient with a first seizure of life or a patient who even has epilepsy and has had a recurrent seizure after being seizure-free, those providers don't necessarily report the patient to the DMV. Uh, And I've definitely not done this uh, earlier on in my training, but I've learned recently that many states have mandatory guidelines for DMV reporting. What's your experience with this? So I'm currently working in a state uh, where I'm required to be a mandatory reporter, and there's about six of them out of the 50 states in America that require that. Those would be California, Delaware, Nevada, New Jersey, Oregon, and of course, Pennsylvania, where both Brian and I practice. Uh, Now, this puts the patient and the doctor in an uncomfortable position because it it really affects the patient-doctor relationship. The way I kind of have this conversation with my patients is that my job as a physician is to share the information that you experience a seizure, then it's up to the Department of Transportation to decide whether or not you shouldn't be driving for a period of time. It makes me feel like even though it makes sense that these people can't necessarily safely get to and from their place of work, that they should not be discriminated against in this way and that some sort of transportation should be provided for them or some other alternative source of employment should be offered. Yeah, and I think in the the, uh, perfect world, that would be an option. For this patient I was discussing earlier, he was able to get transportation to my clinic through a medical ambulance. However, he still had to pay out of pocket over $100 to do that. And, you know, a lot of states don't even have this mandatory reporting at all. They just have to inform the patient that they should or should not drive for a certain amount of time. And each state has their own rules, whether it's three months of not driving or even up to 18 months of not driving uh, before they can get back on the road. Back in the day, you know, 1906 was actually the first time that anyone actually had an automobile accident and a death due to a person having a seizure behind the wheel. And for decades, you know, anyone that was diagnosed with epilepsy wasn't able to get behind the car. However, in the 1940s, with the development of uh, new and more effective seizure medications, it almost became a, a disease that was almost curable. And in 1949, Wisconsin became the first state to allow patients with well-controlled epilepsy to drive. It wasn't until the 1970s that all states allowed some patients with epilepsy to do so. 
the way to discuss this is to remind the patient that they're doing it for their own safety. You're doing it to keep their family members safe and that it's only for a transient period of time, ideally, if we can get these seizures under control. Last thing I want to happen is something to happen to you or a family member when you're in the car and then you hurt yourself. Now, you mentioned earlier that some states require three months of seizure freedom and some much longer than that before a patient with epilepsy can resume driving. How did different states reach these different conclusions about what's safe and what's an acceptable risk for patients with epilepsy and other disorders that can affect consciousness? One study showed that the duration of a seizure-free interval is the strongest predictor of a risk of a seizure-related crash. So usually within the first three to six months, the uh, relative risk of having a seizure-related accident decreases dramatically, and then it kind of plateaus beyond that. Looking at, you know... So there is no perfect time when you can definitively say it's too risky or it's too safe. You can never tell a patient with epilepsy that they'll never have a seizure again while driving. But that doesn't mean you can just withhold their license indefinitely. Millions of Americans would lose their job if you did. So I looked up where this common six-month rule came from. And based on some of this limited data, if you compare studies, we get numbers like this. Consider that in the U.S., nearly 3 million people have epilepsy. That's a lot of people. Now, consider that 86 people die per year in a motor vehicle accident that's attributed to a seizure. I'm honestly not sure to think about whether that's a lot of people or a little, but comparing that to motor vehicle deaths due to alcohol, over 13,000 per year, it doesn't sound like quite as many. Even still, it's 86 potentially preventable deaths, and something that neurologists have to worry about. So now let's imagine the timeline. If you restrict an epileptic patient from driving for 12 months after their last seizure, you could prevent roughly 80% of all crashes associated with seizures, preventing almost 70 deaths per year. A pretty great save, right? But it would also prohibit driving for about 50% of all those patients with epilepsy who would not have crashed in the first place. One and a half million people no longer driving. Now let's suppose you cut down that seizure-free interval to three months for drivers. That would prevent only 50% of the crashes, or about 43 deaths a year. But that comes at the cost of keeping 25% of seizure-free drivers off the road about 750,000 people. Ultimately, this means that more time of driving restriction may prevent a slightly greater number of deaths on the order of tens, but at a significant personal cost and a socioeconomic cost to the country. So, six months may be that happy medium, which can prevent more crashes without significantly interfering with the day-to-day activities of our epileptic patients who may end up not seizing while they're driving. So, Dr. Hanrahan, all that being said, driving restrictions only apply to conditions where consciousness is impaired, and this includes a very select population of epileptic patients, so not all epileptic patients are reported to the DMV. But it's hard for me to know sometimes if whatever the patient experiences as a seizure, or if it's an aura, or nocturnal seizures, or even in other conditions like migraines or narcolepsy, whether any of those conditions should be reported to the DMV as well. Where do you draw the line? At least in the state of Pennsylvania, there are some exceptions to the patients getting their licenses revoked. Uh, One, like you mentioned, is if the patient has a two-year history of nocturnal seizures, because the idea is that they were never actually going to experience one when they're behind the wheel. The other one, if the patient has a two-year history of prolonged aura prior to generalization. 
the idea is that this would provide the patient enough time to get out of a dangerous situation if their seizure was going to progress to a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Two other settings where you may consider not or not revoking a patient's license is if the patient is experiencing an acute illness. For example, the patient having, is having a breakthrough seizure secondary to having a urinary tract infection despite being compliant with their medications. And then also if the patient was undergoing a medical adjustment of their AEDs by a medical practitioner. Because again, this is the setting of of someone else modifying their seizure risks and not something that the patient did. Would you still have to report that to the DMV, that information? So you do have to still report them, but you acknowledge it in the paperwork that these were one of the the exceptions of, of license revoking. We spent a lot of time talking about mandatory reporting for driving, but just to kind of make sure we cover all of our bases, what other advice do you give these patients when they come in with first seizure of life about you know, how to reduce their risk of recurrent seizures and how they could improve their safety over the next couple of months while their seizure risk remains high. One is to minimize the amount of stress someone's experiencing in their lives. A second one would be minimizing the amount of sleep deprivement they're experiencing. Sometimes you do get these patients that are students who are studying for their exams or at work, working overtime, getting minimal amount of sleep. Encouraging that these people maintain to be well-rested and minimizing stress can reduce the risk of having a second-time seizure. In addition, you may want to talk to patients about trying to minimize dangerous type of activities. You know, taking a swim in a pool by yourself, climbing ladders by yourself, being on roofs. Because again, these are settings where if you do have your second seizure, you can really hurt yourself. To that, I would add that it's also important to review a patient's medications. Just the other day, in a pretty unique situation, I was seeing an older gentleman with adult-onset Gaucher's disease. And among the neurologic consequences of his lipid storage disorder, these patients are at a slightly greater risk of having seizures. And for anxiety, he was being treated with bupropion, a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor, which can lower the threshold for seizures. Although he hadn't experienced a seizure yet, He and I decided that since this medication was not helping with his anxiety, we would try to switch him to a different medication. And it's easy to forget that some drugs may increase your chances of having another seizure. Imagine you're seeing a new patient in the ED who had a breakthrough seizure in the setting of a pneumonia. (coughs) Sure, you've got to treat the pneumonia. But if you give that patient levofloxacin, you're putting him or her at greater risk of more seizures. Fluoroquinolones are huge offenders when it comes to meds that can lower your seizure threshold. But lots of drugs can do this too, and it's hard to know which ones are important. I would say the ones you need to know would be the high-dose cephalosporins and penicillins, other antibiotics like meropenem, imipenem, and metronidazole, bupropion, as I just mentioned, and many of the psychostimulants. Also worth noting is that acute alcohol intoxication or withdrawal, and the abrupt withdrawal of certain medications like benzodiazepines and barbiturates will also lower your seizure threshold. Dr. Hanrahan later told me that his patient was fine. He had an isolated, unprovoked seizure, which always sounds terrifying. But epidemiologic data says that 8-10% to of Americans will have at least one seizure in their lifetime, even though there's a less than 3% chance of developing epilepsy. So, counseling these situations is going to be very important, and you shouldn't immediately jump to treating a patient with an anti-epileptic drug. 
Obviously, I'm not telling you not to treat seizures. This podcast is for medical education and not for management. And compared to almost every other case we've discussed on the show, this patient actually did very well. Thanks so much for sharing the story with us, Dr. Hanrahan. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Brian Hanrahan of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for joining us in the case discussion this week. As always, we're interested in what you think about the show, and if you have any interesting cases or topics you'd like us to discuss, reach out to us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash brainwavesaudio. The episode this week was produced by me, Jim Siegler. Music was courtesy of Axeltree, Josh Woodward, and Kevin McLeod. That wraps up this week. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.